Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Richard Desmond is poised to sell his paper empire whilst purchases Trinity Mirror face phone hacking victims in court. We discuss those stories, plus the latest goings on at Channel 4, why Six Music might need a rejig of its own, the fallout from the BBC gender pay gap dispute, how podcasts are the future of advertising. Sponsors, please do get in touch. And in the media quiz, we play Famous Last Words. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today is Boyd Hilton. No, not the British historian of Trinity College. There was a mix-up there. We've got the entertainment director of Heat magazine. Boyd, did you know you're not the top Boyd Hilton on Google? Of course I'm aware of that, but (laughs) it's unfair because Boyd is his middle name, really. Wow. He calls himself Boyd Hilton, but for me he's an imposter. Boyd is my first name, so yeah, it's, have, it's not fair. Really. Have you ever met? Never met. I've been. I sent a check of his once, which I, I think I'm, I'm sure I sent it back for some history thing that was on the Open University. This is like about 15 years ago, <laughs> um, uh, as if it wasn't me that did it. Yeah, yeah, he is the eminent historian. I'm a media doofus. There's a guy called Oliver Mann who's got the same email address as me, minus a dot, and uh, oh. I get messages from his mum about what to listen to on Radio Four. <laughs> But that could be messages from your mum about listening to you on radio. Before. It could be, yeah. Um, now, uh, Boyd, despite yes. the many hats that you wear, uh, yeah. some of your time is spent watching previews. Uh, what have you seen this week? A hell of a lot of my time is spent watching previews. Um, do you know what is good is uh, there's a new thing. Steven Soderbergh has directed a new series called uh, Mosaic, oh, yes. which is going to be on Sky Atlantic slash Now TV in a couple of weeks' time on Saturday night, quite weirdly. And it's really interesting. It's a crime drama with Sharon Stone. And in America, they had an app. That, that they um, created for it, where you could follow the story from different characters' points of view. So okay. it's quite innovative and interesting. The way you said that, I thought maybe the app was going to be where you can track Sharon Stone's career, Steady. like what she'd been doing for the last five years. Wow. Boom. Easy. No, but, but she's brilliant. She's fantastic in it. Yeah. Great to have her back. Okay. Uh, Rebecca Gilly is joining us as well from hey. theweek.co.uk. Welcome back, journalist Rebecca Gilly. <laughs> what have you been journaling this week? I've actually been doing an in-depth piece on the Freemasons, was a big thing that I did this week. They've been in the news recently about the secret lodges in Westminster. They're apparently now so upset about all the negative publicity that they're taking out adverts. So it was about what really goes on in the Masonic lodges. And what did you find out? Were you permitted to speak to them? No, I was no, I was not permitted to speak to them. Basically, it's just a bunch of silly old men. It's basically the Rotary Club with different sashes. It really is just a load of, you know, it's, it's all fun and games. It's not nefarious. Wink. Hey, Ollie Mann's spoken at the Rotary Club AGM. 
and uh, it wasn't just silly old men; it was silly old women as well. Yes, exactly. and they were very nice. Well, it's all it's all men, and I remember when I used to waitress that we used to have a, an all male order. They were sort of like a subpar knockoff of the Freemasons, and they specifically requested no female waitstaff. So I never got to see what was going on in there. Well, I waitressed at the Rotary Club. Just doesn't have the uh, <laughs> online traction that President's Club does, does it? Sadly, you, otherwise you'd have a great story there. Uh, all right, we're going to cover a couple of press stories at the top today. First off, the news that Richard Desmond is poised to sell his newspaper business to Trinity Mirror. Um, now, this has been widely trailed, hasn't it, Boyd? We've been talking about this for three years on and off. Yeah, it's been going on for ages, isn't it? Well, they've just been haggling over the price, haven't they? Is, is that the main... And pension. And pension, yeah. yeah. The pe- I mean, the pension thing, I don't really understand that, apart from the fact that there's not enough money in the pension pot. And, yeah, it's going to sit for £125 million, is that right? Something like that. Does that strike you as a good deal, Rebecca? I'm, uh, the whole thing slightly confuses me because I, I'm not sure I fully understand the financial reasoning behind it. The idea seeming to be that the economies of scale they, yeah. that Trinity Mirror will be able to get from this purchase is going to offset their giant pension deficit. I just It worries me slightly because Richard Desmond's selling his media empire. Trinity Mirror seemed to think that by creating a bigger media empire, they're going to somehow save and then ultimately make lots of money. The, the whole thing sounds a little bit dubious, but I think they've been going on about it for so long that it's kind of reached a point of inevitability. No, Especially okay. in print, if it, if it was bold in this day and age to, for Maternity Mirror to expand its print titles, you know, yeah. considering in, in, you know, it feels to me, like particularly newspapers, that you know, they don't make, does anyone make money? Apart from, people, apart from the, the kind of big titles with paywalls, who are, who are doing okay, I think, uh, I'm not sure how it's going to work. They're going to make more money. I'm not sure how that yeah. economics of scale is going to work. But I'm in- particularly interested that OK is part of this deal, of course, which is a, been one of our big rivals at Heat, I have, to, I have to declare that, and has been for many, many years. And it's completely, the whole celebrity weekly market was kind of turned on its head by OK because he started, Richard Desmond started multi-packing. Well, he's got about three different celebrity weekly titles of varying quality. Yeah, what's, what's the heater like you get with OK? Hot stars? Hot, hot stars. It used to get, then that's gone. That, oh, that, right. that disappeared, which is literally a copy of Heat, you know, yeah. down to the font and everything. Yeah. Um, but he's got other ones as well. New, I think, is his. Anyway, that he packs them all together in one, in one thing, which completely kind of started ruining the market. We don't do that at all anymore. Um, so... That's an interesting thing. What happens to OK, I think, is, is, is fascinating. Cause it doesn't feel like a core kind of mirror, Trinity mirror proposition. But presumably that's what they really want. I mean, I know The Express, obviously, is a title with some history. but OK it, is what they really want. I think OK is what, Because let's be honest, The Express is shit, isn't it? And The, <laughs> I mean, the Daily really, Star really is just a poor... I mean, it's not... I don't... I mean, in tabloid terms, it's shit, right? I mean, so, but, but OK is arguably better than Hello, More Mass Appeal. Well, I mean, it's definitely going to fit in a lot more easily because it's not, you know, it's not controversial in any way. The, the interesting thing from, you know, beyond the financial aspect, from the journalistic perspective, is what's going to happen to the editorial side. You know, Express, obviously, is known for being very Brexit-thumping, anti-this, anti-that. Mm, yeah. And coming into the same stable with the Daily Mirror, it's caused a lot of excitement, I think probably naively, in the left-wing blogosphere about how the Daily Express is now going to become a pro-Labour paper, which I think is, A, very unlikely to happen, and B, it's a bit short-sighted to think that that would necessarily be a good thing, that you can just sell off a paper and have its entire editorial direction reversed. I, I don't think that's likely to happen, but I think it'd be really interesting to see how the Daily Express is going to fit in alongside the Daily Mirror, because if you're going to have two papers next to each other on, you know, in the news agent, one of them saying you know, Corbyn's awful, the other one saying Corbyn's great, knowing that they're run by the same company. It's just going to be a slightly weird feeling. I to, think. to you, 
but I mean, you're not an Express reader, I'm guessing. I mean, Daily Express readers haven't cared that the title was owned by the same bloke who ran Asian Babes and whatever. So d- does that matter? They don't care who owns it. No. I, I mean, who yeah. is the Express reader? It's a fascinating. I mean, what it my grandma really used obs- to really yeah, people Daily obsessed Express, with the weather. JC, now nothing. The weather seems to be a big thing every other day, and they have their obsessions. They don't have like you're Diana the, for years. The weather's was, good because <laughs> Diana and Maddie have sort of dried up, yeah. Yeah. whereas was, the weather is always with us. Yeah, that so. was just perverse obsession but with Maddie. Don't forget cancer, miracle cure. I think maybe on cancer and weather, the Express and the Mirror can find their crossover because (laughs) I think people are interested in weather no matter what their background. Maybe weather from a left-wing point of view, from a liberal left. Maybe that's the niche they're they're going for. I don't know. If we're going to stop being cynical for just I don't know, let's give it thirty seconds. Um, (laughs) It it could be argued, couldn't it, that at least Trinity Mirror is a uh, news company, a company that invests in journalism. Okay, they're going to cut back doing this consolidation, but Richard Desmond isn't and never has been particularly interested in that. if I, if I, I mean, if I, if I worked for the Express, I mean, I'd be, you'd be conflicted, wouldn't you? On the one hand, thank God you've got rid of this. I mean, can I say egomaniac? At least, you know, I don't think he can sue for that. I'm trying to find the right words that he can't sue for. <laughs> but one of the proper old school, white old man, you know, just doing everything for his ego, you know, putting him pictures of himself in all of his publications. At least they've got rid of him. But on the other side, they're going to be part of this big group that who knows how they're going to consolidate the title and, and save money. So it, it must be, I do feel sorry for people. I've always felt sorry for people who have to work for Richard Desmond. But particularly, this doesn't feel like a great new dawn i don't know it feels like a particularly uncertain thing I to mean, have to go through i think the express staff and the and the star staff are probably going to be pretty pleased about this because i did a couple of trial days there in the process of being made redundant from my old job and i once witnessed an argument over cups because everyone had to bring their own mug there were no staff mugs everyone brought their own they were squabbling about milk people who were happy to use the communal milk but never brought in a pint of communal milk <laughs> there were about 20 people on a floor with about 150 seats uh, okay. it was yeah. post-apocalyptic what's yeah. the milk situation at heat Fine. No do you share communal milk bower towers bower pay for the milk fine amount of milk no problem with mugs, I have to say. There's uh, a whole episode, because even within the BBC, is. I've noticed, for yeah. example, BBC Three Counties Radio, everyone brings in their own milk and writes their name on it. BBC Radio Northampton, communal milk. God, this is a whole, same budget. This is a whole new vein. Sister stations. It's a mine, isn't it? <laughs> uh, sticking with the mirror, um, they've got their own problems. They've just settled their phone hacking case with Hugh Grant. Uh, a spokesperson for Mirror Group newspapers admitted officials, quote, turned a blind eye to the illegal practice. Uh, so, boy, does this make Trinity Mirror a fit and proper publisher to take on the Express and the Daily Star, <laughs> oh, do you think? Oh, God. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, can of worms. Mr. Lawyer again. You've passed me. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think presumably most of the, even the top-level executives and certainly editors who were in charge back in the day when this stuff was going on, apparently on an industrial scale, have gone. I mean, moved on to Pastures New. I don't know, Good Morning Britain, for example. And so I don't think it means that they're not fit and proper to um, carry on being the uh, media group they are. I mean, I think it's... I was fascinated by the wording. So this this has been going on as well for years and years, this, this, haven't they? And they've kind of finally settled on... And and the lawyer, Hugh Grant's lawyer, got... You you said the word... um, You said turn a blind eye. The, f- the actual phrase, intriguingly, is they, uh, senior employees, including executives, editors and journalists, condoned, encouraged or actively turned a blind eye to the widespread culture of unlawful infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Actively turning a blind eye. I was trying to work out what that, I mean, they've had been haggling, it must be haggling over these, this, this yeah. wording for years. And it's fascinating because f- what that means to me is like, so back in then, in those days when this was happening, when phone hacking was happening to get stories, they'd go into conference in the morning, the, the poor, you know, young 
showbiz journalists who are getting who, these stories from phone hacking would tell you know the editors oh we've got this brilliant story and the editors would just not f- ask them where they got the story I mean that sounds to me what was happening that's my interpretation of this thing actively turning a blind eye so where there should be a question a question yeah, wasn't asked yeah I think so and I, and I would like I would like to see it's interesting that the editors the people in charge because I always feel in this situation that you know the journalists get the blame for it the ones that had you know and, the, and I feel the whole kind of tone and mood uh, particularly in that period, hopefully it's different now, I don't know. But I had a lot of friends who worked for tabloids back in those days, you know, the sun and the mirror. And, and it was so hard and competitive. And it's like bullying culture, I have to say, you know, from the, the higher-ups. And the pressure to come up with exclusives, particularly in showbiz, you know, involving Hugh Grant, for example, would have been so intense. And I think that's really why they ended up using these methods. And I think you have to blame the, 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 the bosses and the editors. And, I, you nev- and you don't see, I've never seen, apart from you know, Leveson, we talk about Leveson having Leveson too, those people actually asked, what, you know, do you resent, do you regret, not resent, do you regret that atmosphere where it meant that the journalists had to use this method, this illegal method, an immoral method of getting these stories because the competition was so desperate and so extreme. I think it, I think it was a terrible situation. I think for a lot of journalistic history, has those kinds of dirty tactics have been the norm. You know, thinking back to like the you know, like yellow journalism around the turn of the 20th century, it was completely normal then and expected, really, for reporters to just make things up, use all the dirty tricks in the book. It's only really a relatively recent innovation that we expect journalists to have that kind of standard of behaviour. You know, you know, yeah. journalists used to have a, you know, a reputation just, you know, doorstepping people. And, you know, I, I think it was actually expected that they used all these kinds of tactics. So, you know, it's, I mean, obviously it's yeah. good that it's, it's being cleaned up and it's clear that's not acceptable. But I think phone hacking was really just a modern technological twist on what's, you know, been kind of accepted practices for basically a century. I mean, it is different now. So we don't get, I mean, the one thing that this whole situation is, it, there is we don't get many kiss and tells, for example, you know, every now and then. But, the, you know, back in the day when the news of the world existed, for example, you know, there, there was incredible competition to get stories of sexual, you know, peccadilloes from involving famous people and a lot of the, and just details of what famous people mm. were doing day in day out, which must have come obviously from phone hacking and that feels different now so yeah I mean on a daily basis you know all newspapers and I include broadsheets in this you know I, I think the that competitive is there is, is, is desperate and every now and then a broadsheet comes up with a story that I think is absolutely clearly preposterous but, but actually isn't it because um, punters themselves actually if they see a celebrity story they think worth reporting they don't think of it in economic terms they think oh I'm going to share this on social media as soon as possible for I free I think we've really gone through a bit of a social change though towards celebrities and another, another, in, in the sense that we appreciate them more as people now and we do expect them to want their privacy and I think I people agree yeah. more more widely that they have a right to privacy if you think of like you're saying with kiss and towels you know you don't see those that many salacious no. stories anymore because they do elicit a backlash and I think we saw the same sort of thing with the Harvey Weinstein thing I think 10 or 20 years ago people would have said that, that, that was essentially they, grope and tell wasn't it I'm not saying that the people were wrong to come out and say that had well, happened to no, them, but, but that, think, that, that is a story that previously might have been sold which is now women coming forward and saying for free <laughs> I want to put this story out there because it's 10 important or tw- I think ten, 10 or 20 years ago there was an expectation that well that's how Hollywood works that's how the media industry works and people who work in that industry aren't like us they know the rules and that's how it is I think we've come round to a place where we do think of celebrities as having the same rights as the rest of us and people are a bit more sympathetic to their plight and you know I'm not sure if all showbiz journalists do but I hope you're right <laughs> okay final question on this Leveson 2 Leveson harder yeah. uh, do we think it's going to actually happen Hugh Grant wants no, it to I mean, no I mean I can't imagine them. it's such a 
you know, it's it, it's just too much. It's too difficult for the people involved in in the newspapers to go through that that thing. And I can't see a very weak Tory government, you know, agreeing to Leveson. Two. Hasn't um, isn't there some kind of inquiry into the the um, Theresa May set up about the viability of of newspapers? I think that feels like the the kind of look over there. We're doing this, so we can't do Leveson two because that's just too much for everyone to take. And there is a danger, maybe Rebecca, that although it was very valiant in a way, I mean, Hugh Grant actually uh, donated his compensation, reportedly a six figure sum, to Hacked Off, so it's not for his personal gain. Um, but although it's very valiant in a way that these big stars have pursued it because they can afford to, Steve Coogan, Hugh Grant, it's become recalibrated in the public's mind, this story, as about rich celebrities having a go at the media rather than, you know, ordinary people having their bins rifled through and being doorstep. up. Yeah, I mean, I think Leveson to the, uh, you know, the... I understand why, like you say, the Hugh Grants, etc., want it and actually some good could come of it. But fundamentally, it'd be really expensive and a really tiny proportion of people actively care about it. Okay, let's talk about Telly. The new head of Channel 4, Ian Katz, has been hard at work shaping his top team. Uh, Kelly Webb-Lamb becomes his deputy. Uh, Boyd, remind us a little bit about her background. Kelly Webb-Lamb, who I have met, and she's uh, great, I think, um, she is leading the channel's on-screen diversity and inclusion strategy, as well as the factual entertainment features and daytime commissioning teams, which all report to her. Um, she's the ex-MD of Shine Television. She joined Channel 4 as head of factual entertainment. I think I've done some panels with her in Edinburgh in her role as head of factual entertainment. You think? I think. Were I you mean, that drunk? No, yeah, always. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've seen me in Edinburgh. It's just a blur. The whole thing's a blur. Wait, I can't remember. Post-panel regret. I could barely remember. Who one. have I chatted to? Yeah, I could barely remember one media podcast to the next. <laughs> Who did I in Q&A Edinburgh? yesterday? Afternoon. But um, no, she's she's really she's really interesting and um, she's very likable and very and very smart. And I think she'll do a great job. And um, she did oversee the launch of Bake Off on Channel Four, which you know that was a poison chalice, wasn't it? Because that could have gone horrendously wrong. And I think you know if she's the one, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, but if she was the one who made sure they pretty much stuck to the recipe, so to speak, of when it was a, a gigantic hit on BBC, apart from bringing the presenters in, you know, and, um, you know, very slightly tweaking things here and there, mm. then she did a brilliant job because, you know, it was pretty much as big as they could have hoped. Um, back and uh, Poison Chalice, of course, was the episode two showstopper. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, Rebecca, not as much of a bloodbath as we'd expected, actually. I mean, a lot of the executives are remaining in place. Do you think that says Channel 4 possibly in quite healthy shape I think so this is certainly the impression that I've got but then of course you know a lot of what you hear is what they're putting out themselves I think you know Bake Off has been a a particularly strong thing for them this year because it has gone a bit from Poison Chalice to now really golden goose status that it was at the BBC do you like that I love that do you like that (laughs) Chalice to goose yeah (laughs) the thing is the thing is is what what Channel 4 kind of what it was very useful for them is to have a flagpole tentpole flagship flagship yeah. tentpole to have a tentpole program that they can kind of rely on because what channel 4 has always been good at is stuff that's a bit out there a little bit experimental but you do need to have some solid hits to keep that going i think bake-off could have fallen flat but it's done pretty well and i think the majority of people who watch this series will probably come back and watch the next one and boyd what are the challenges for channel 4 do you think if you were on stage interviewing kelly webland possibly for the first time at yeah uh, <laughs> what would you be asking her I think um, I think it may, probably the big challenge is coming up with new formats and new, you know, particularly in factual entertainment. They've had some huge big hits over the years, but a lot of them have been going on. First dates, you know, goes on and on and on. Mm. Fine. But how do you find new ones, you know, new, interesting? 
entertainment itself for me, for me feels like a big challenge for generally for Ian Katz and the whole team. Channel Four hasn't had, and I'm trying to think of a decent, you know, big new entertainment um, format with what fits their remit. Um, Ten o'clock even, live, arguably, was the last attempt. Yeah, wasn't right. It? And know, even that was a couple of years ago. It was a couple of years work. ago. Yeah. Um, they're trying all sorts. Of, you know, they, they did a one-off with, of uh, uh, Alan Carr hosting a revival of um, Come On Down. You know, what's that show called? Price is Right. Price is Right, thank yeah. you. I mean, and, they'd point to the last leg, wouldn't they? But you can't keep doing that. Yeah, I mean, the la- well, see, that's classic Channel 4. So the last leg, which is great and does really well, is now on like 40 weeks a year. Yeah. They just milk the- if, if something vaguely works, and, and Gogglebox, again, similarly, 40 weeks a year, practically. But they need some new stuff. In that vein, I think drama's really strong for them. I think they do some. I think they're very, they're brilliantly target. You know, like Kiri. Oh, that was good. Four wasn't it? part. Watch Kiri, Rebecca. No, I didn't. Oh, it so Jack yeah. Thorne again. He's so bit, good. A little bit what? Oh no. Dark. No. Yeah, it was. Dark, it was brilliant. marketed a little bit like, oh, this is a parody of a Channel Four drama. It wasn't. It was really good. No, was Sarah really Lancashire good. looking at things sadly. <laughs> no, she had a brilliant dog. Sarah Lancashire in the dog scenes, fantastic. Did get murdered. No. Dog oh, okay. Spoiler alert: The dog survived. Yeah. Okay. Good it was just basically like Turner and Hooch. Yeah, but I think their drama is doing well. But the the um, those one-off um, science fiction ones didn't do as well as they hoped, I think. But um, but in general, I think their drama is bold and contemporary, and absolutely exactly what Channel Four should be doing. But I'm not sure if ent- entertainment seems to be the area where they need to to, to boost that. Uh, before we go to the break, a quick look at the radio industry's latest listening figures released the morning we're recording, and Matt Deegan isn't here. So Boyd and Rebecca, I'm going to ask your reactions instead. I have read Matt Deegan's blog. Uh, he says the big story was about Chris Moyles. The breakfast show on Radio X now has oh. a bigger reach than the whole of XFM in its last few months before it was rebranded. So has the Radio X project been a success for Global? Well, I think it's, you know, the, it shows the power of personality. I think that Chris Moyles at the BBC was sort of got to a place where he was considered disposable. I think they, they thought it really doesn't matter who's... Who's in, who's in charge, people will keep listening in those key slots. And I think it does show that a lot of his audience have followed him. Um, and I think it's it's interesting because I don't think we have had here the same way they do in the US where they have these big radio personalities who kind of take their audience wherever they go. And I think he's proven to be an example of that. I mean, I'm not one of them. I, I never listen to him, but lots of people clearly do and clearly are also would then be willing to follow other radio presenters if they were to leave the BBC or you know Capital whatever they'll follow their personalities around and I think that might be an interesting development in our radio culture anyway. And what's interesting about Moyles Boyd is that he's one of the rare examples on commercial radio I mean if you look at the global stable there's really only him and Johnny Vaughan and the presenters on LBC who are allowed to have some personality the rest of the time they're told they get big names and they tell them not to say anything. Almost if this hadn't have happened if Chris Moyles hadn't have you know got a bigger audience than when it was XFM it would have been embarrassing so I think it had to I mean you know he's he was a huge huge star you know you can't overestimate how big he was when he was Radio 1 so that's literally the point of giving him that job was so that he could bring his fan base to it and I'm sure but does it mean that commercial radio needs more personality yeah I do think so I think it's hard with commercial radio because um on the one hand if you're a kind of slightly if you're a show like a radio station relying on very mainstream music output then it, the personality is slight, is secondary to making sure that the music is, is is what people want to listen to so there's that big kind of you know if, if one if if a if a station has is a music output and they put out a song that the public doesn't like they'll turn over immediately to its oh, big rifle just dropping my iphone um phone drop. your phone drops the boyd hilton mic drop so that's they have to be careful and and people and i think a lot of commercial realists don't necessarily want to hear someone whittering on phrase names and yet you know christian o'connell of course is a big that's a big he's leaving absolute 
part of the Bauer family that I work for, and I don't know who's going to take over him. That'll be fascinating. Who they get. I don't know if this hasn't been. No, that's a complete. Yeah, it hasn't. You know. They have Dave Berry, of course, but they've just spent a lot of money promoting him on Drive. Right. Yeah. So that. I mean, it will be absolutely intriguing to me who they who they pick to, to do that job because I love Christian O'Connell. On I'm absolute. available. I'm just saying. Yeah. So am I. Um, and I'm part of the Bauer family. I'm part of the Bauer family. I am. Ollie and Boyd's yeah, cornflake show. Yeah. So, but you're right. I think Why do you I, laugh? Yeah. But I think it'll be fascinating. Do they go for big personality or what? In, in very intriguing times for commercial radio. And, Music radio particularly. Well, okay. Let's talk about commercial speech radio then. Talk radio showing no signs of growth uh, in this radar quarter. What does that tell us? I feel like talk radio is something that most listeners grow into. So it's really just a case of waiting till people are the right age to start listening to things like the Today programme. They've always got their core listenership. I think it's hard expanding talk radio beyond that. To talk about talk radio the station rather than talk radio the genre. Oh, sorry. No, no. I couldn't hear the capitals. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What they've they've done is is they've just changed their lineup. Julia Hartley Brewer is now doing breakfast. Uh, They got rid of Jake Yap, which I think was such a shame because he's so great. Um, But really what they've done, it seems to me, is, is they've said, let's go after that slightly older audience, Rebecca, that you're alluding to let's not try and get the people who are listening to podcasts let's try and get people who listen to lbc and five live um they've got paul ross and martin kellner doing overnights which actually that's a strong overnight lineup i'd be a bit scared of that if i was lbc i mean they will get an audience yeah, do you think they've got a good strategy i think I, I don't really i generally don't understand what the niche for talk radio is like what it's you know what it's usb is so because it, it, you've got lbc you know which you can listen to can't you nationally um, which has got big personalities, big political, you know, they cover both both sides of the political divide quite effectively. Um, and you've got talk radio, Julie Hartley Brewer, I'm, I can't stand her, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I react against her because she talks absolute nonsense day and day. And double, she's a double downer. She's the no nonsense breakfast. No, no, no. She'll come out. She'll come out with some right wing view, you know, and then double down on it when everyone says, "You know, you're talking nonsense." Anyway, she'll say it with a smile. She'll say it with a smile. So I can't. But in generally, what is the proposition? Because you've got LBC on the one hand, you've got Five Live, you know, doing a lot of talk radio. In, in, you know, in in a, I feel in a very you know, compelling way. You've got. Um, Talk sport, you know. The, if you want, if you want, just purely talk about sport. Talk sport does a really good job of that um, in a diff- slightly different way to Five Live. And of course, you've got Radio Four. I don't know what is the talk radio. What is what is it going for? It feels a bit vague to me. And that's the thing with LBC, as I think it's the only one of those stations that's managed to break into that younger audience. But they've done it a lot through social media. Like in a way, you know. I know one of the things that's been discussed a lot recently, like in recent years, is how we don't have a TV equivalent of The Daily Show or The Colbert Report that's really taken off. Whereas I see a lot on Facebook and Twitter people sharing clips of LBC. And, yeah. you know, and that yeah. has almost filled that niche of that shareable political... You know, because that's something that, that talk radio, the genre, can really address well in comparison to podcasts, is that kind of day-to-day, current affairs, up to the minute, is, something, is, is a niche that... that kind of the, the, that genre can fill that podcasts can't necessarily is George Galloway still on talk radio he is it's extraordinary isn't it he's a guilty pleasure by... for me I'm afraid I'm not gonna, I, I rather like oh, well, a bit of George well, no, Galloway I think he's Friday fascinating, but he's, he's a great broadcaster it is yeah George, how does he justify that how does that work well, I, I think he's, a, he's kind of the James O'Brien of talk radio isn't he okay. can't they just point <laughs> at him and say oh no look we do all different okay. political views we've got George Galloway Fine. Um, also uh, plateauing is BBC Six Music any thoughts on that I mean they had a really good run yeah, I mean, isn't it? I mean, it can't go on growing forever. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's for, for me. I mean, I love six music, but it feels like it is. You know, it's it's found brilliantly. Which remember, at one point it was it was going to be axed ludicrously in the when BBC was being genuinely bonkers. Um, it was saved after a campaign and then grew and grew and grew. So it feels 
fairly natural it, at some point it's going to plateau because thank God it's not compromising its its um, proposition. So it is, you know, it plays fairly niche music, thank God. Um, and it has a great lineup of presenters who know about that music. And that's what it does. And I'm not sure if it's ever going to, it's not going to become Radio 2 or, you know, or a kind of, or Magic FM, is it? It's going to be what it is. So I think fair enough that it's plateaued. It's a bit of a songs of praise type thing, isn't it? It's the BBC serving its purpose. You know, it might not attract a much bigger audience than what it has now. But what it's doing is it's so good and refreshing and so in line with what the BBC is supposed to be doing that. And I think that idea has taken hold now, so it probably is safe. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Totally I, safe. I, I yeah, they can't get rid of six music. No, no don't, <laughs> never. Okay. Time for our ad break, but we'll be back with more of what we're supposed to be doing after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Post-production. It's the bit after the production, but of course you know that because you work in telly. Well, maybe you do. If you do, then RunVT is the post-production facility you desire. It has 15 offline and two online suites, as well as an arresting bass-like grading theatre, a very comfortable dubbing suite, and an idiot-proof voiceover booth. Look, I'm using it now. Idiot proof. And what, pray tell, can you see that Run VT has had a hand in? Well, why not check out Murder in Paradise, produced by Rumpus Media, available now on Demand 5. Edit your next show at Run VT if you work in TV. Go to runvt.tv now. Time for some media news in brief now, Rebecca and Boyd are still here with me and well one of the biggest stories of the whole year actually has been um, the continuing fallout from the BBC gender pay gap revelations Carrie Gracie of course now becoming the kind of figurehead for that debate and she went in front of the DCMS select committee last week. Uh, Boyd were you watching? 
Um, I didn't watch it. So Rebecca, I have to say, were you I'm watching? Busy man. Angry? She was angry, <laughs> wasn't she? She was extremely angry. Well, it was. It, I saw. I, I must admit, I did not watch it. We've all watched the two-minute clip. We're not going to see yeah, watching the highlights. Yeah, yeah, we've seen the yeah. highlights. Fine. So, what did you think of the two see minutes? The goals. Yeah. <laughs> but she was. I mean, she was angry and justifiably. You know, the 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 justification she was given for the pay difference being that her role was different in scope and scale from her colleagues in the Middle East and the US is ridiculous. I mean, she was the China editor. She wasn't the Armenia editor. It, you know, obviously, China's in the news every single day. It's a bit a bit weak source to claim that that's okay. so different. Can we just deal with that point honestly for a second? Oh. Yes, China is in the news every day. But in the BBC News agenda, it isn't as high profile, is it, as the Middle East or America? So I, I don't think it's right to say, obviously, yeah. that there should be such a huge disparity. But there is an argument to be made, isn't there, that I US and Middle East is more important, that it's not fair to compare She them. wasn't on TV every day, unlike... No, exactly. unlike I mean, jo- Jeremy unlike, Bowen and John yeah. Sutherland I mean, I have to say, I, I, household I, names I, around the world, were they paid more because they were on telly, or they were on telly because they were paid more? You know, they, did they, were they pushed forward to become personalities reporting, you know, from the front line, becoming a familiar face? Or is that just something that arose because, as you say, admittedly, US, Middle East are slightly bigger gigs? I mean, maybe a safer way would be to classify countries by tiers rather than having each country get an individual there is value. An, there is a justification, and it's not the one we've been hearing. I agree with you. I, agree. I, I found it very confusing. As soon as this story kind of blew up, that, well, hold on a minute, you know, my mum hasn't heard of Carrie Gracie, and we don't see that, we don't see many... China stories on the news day in day out, or as we see Jeremy Bowen every single day talking about Donald Trump in a very rather wryly uh, impressive way, and so it feels weird that we're pretending that she's the same, doing the same thing when she's clearly not, or she's certainly not being broad- broadcasting in the same way as, the, as, as those guys that are being paid way more. I think the issue for me that is clear that we, that has to, you know, we can't pretend that that's not the case. But equally. I think this goes back to a period when the BBC, for some reason, thought that these big blokes were the, were the only people that could get these bi- the big jobs of being on TV, in news I'm talking about, day in, day out. And, you know, all the newsreaders dominated by big blokes and, you know, presenters of factual shows. And they seem to think they're huge stars and no one else could do their job and we're going to pay them loads of money. That, to me, was the problem, which they're completely nonsense, you know. And that goes for today and everything. They could get rid of John Humphreys tomorrow. Who would miss him? Get someone else in to do it. I seriously think that. I think, you know, the amount of people I'd, I'd who would miss John John Humphreys is you and a few other old white guys. <laughs> I don't think that's fair. I do. Ouch. I think I think they completely overestimate the extent to which those people are. I wouldn't miss Justin Webb. We can well, kill off Justin Webb. Because there's such a historic association, you know, the news is something that a yeah. deep-voiced man right. intones exactly. to you. Exactly. But the Carrie Gracie thing seems to be slightly different to me, and I, I think the BBC has said stupid things about it, but. The actual situation seems to I agree that there's a difference in her public profile, but one of the points she made that I thought was interesting was that the job of China editor is so is is harder than the than US or Middle oh. East because of the censorship, because of the political sure. sensitivity, and that the work she was doing, even if it wasn't on the same profile, was an equal worth to the BBC. Which I th- I mean I I think you'd have to be you know inside the yeah. inside the news service to really assess the weight of those claims. But I thought it was an interesting point she made is that her job was was that much harder in that respect that her work was worth the same and this all started because the bbc was forced by the government to release information on its highest paid stars do you think now they should go the whole hog and publish the salaries of all on-screen talent should they force indies to release how much entertainment presenters get paid should we see everything no they can't why the justification's the same public money the whole thing is a big mess because you know the, didn't the, say it wasn't only, a mess. Yeah, but the only thing, how can you compare? You know, a big showbiz presenters, um, what they're earning from the BBC 
to you know, is, there, there's no, there, there, there are no, none of them are doing the same job. Exactly, unless you, the only people that are doing the same job, for example, maybe Emily Maitlis, you know, the presenters of Newsnight. If they're being paid differently, they're doing exactly the same job, right? So the male presenters of Newsnight and the female presenters of Newsnight. But, but even but then, the, but, but Graham then. Norton is not doing the same job as Claudia Winkleman. They're just not. So Graham, Graham's show is on 40 times a year or whatever, and is you know, and Claudia Winkleman's is, is on 16, 17 weeks a year. It's just, they're just different. So I, what I'm saying is it's going to take an incredible amount of um, genius, some mathematical genius to work out that if all the showbiz presenters, are they being paid fairly in terms no, of gender? No, but it doesn't take because, a genius to have a cap. To, like they have in news, we don't know what it is oh, yet. if that's but, your question, should there be a cap? I feel if the BBC is going to compete with ITV in terms of showbiz, then like there, there can't be a cap. They have to be able to compete on a fair. Graham footing. Norton would stay doing his show at a million pounds a year, wouldn't we? Wouldn't he? We don't know what he's going to do. Why would he? Why? We're going to breed a strange genre of presenter that uh, that only works at the BBC because they feel a loyalty yeah. to the BBC. You know, right. you, that you're not going to be able to draw a, that a wide pool of talent that way you have to be competitive and I don't yeah. <laughs> at the risk of sounding paternalistic I think there is something to be said for keeping those figures private because all you get at the end of the day is the backlash of that could pay for eight of our NHS nurses you know whereas same you know it's just like with the world of sport it's about competitive competitivity yeah. and market rates and that sort of thing and at the end of the day if the BBC is going to stay at the top of its game it's going to have to part with a lot of money for the, the right people. And in the interest of transparency, I should point out that both Boyd and Rebecca are getting paid the same amount for their contributions <laughs> to today's show. Uh, let's talk about fake news. The government is setting up a, quote, rapid response unit to tackle the rise in fake news shared on social media. Rebecca, what has prompted this? But yeah, I mean, we've been hearing a lot about fake news, obviously the high profile one being Russian interference in the US election, but there was also a lot of talk about was there Russian interference in the EU referendum vote, which from what I've read sounds a little bit like Remainer wishful thinking that probably wasn't to a huge extent but so the idea being that people need to be protected from you know seeing all of this misinformation online and this government this new government hit squad is going to be out there responding to fake news although not maybe in the way that you think because really they're going to be focusing on identifying any potential state interference uh, using social media so when your auntie shares something about how marijuana kills cancer they're not going to be clamping down on that um it's all a bit it's all a bit of an old-fashioned solution to a new problem isn't it i just don't i can't really imagine how this is going to work the rate that fake news spreads and boyd you uh referenced earlier in the show that the prime minister also announced this week a review into the role of facebook and google in reduced revenue for journalism yes Give us a, a pricey of what she said. Well, wasn't it, well, wasn't it, this is a reaction to, you know, the, the, the story that Facebook, it rejigged its, its news, the way it throws out news stories. And, and all you know, journalists and news providers are terrified that this is going to affect their bottom line. And so she's, you know, launching some kind of, look, some kind of investigation into how that's going to affect the news industry, which seems like a decent thing to do. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, you know... That's but it's fair. interesting it was her spearheading it, wasn't it, rather than Matt Hancock, who's the new DCMS guy. I mean, the Prime Minister's making a speech about this. What does that signify? I, just, I think the whole thing has, be, is, has become so politicised because of the supposed role of fake news and misinformation spread almost entirely through Facebook and to a lesser extent Twitter that it has prompted this response now that it needs that high profile intervention from the very top to say we're looking into this because people on both sides and you know all 
sides, if you will, of the political spectrum are upset about this. Everyone thinks that the other side is making up tons of fake news. So I think it's a sort it's an it's an initiative that everyone can get behind relatively frictionlessly. But I, I mean, I just don't. I'm not overly hopeful about how. I mean, it just seems like this investigation is taking in such an enormous spread of issues: fake news, the duopoly of um, Google and Facebook. I'm not quite sure that the <laughs> the DCMS can solve no, this problem. No, I don't think it can be solved. I mean, I think it's yeah. So I, on, on the one hand, it's fair enough for it to make. I mean, every speech she gives is a diversion from something or other, isn't it? Her own her own precariousness, basically. But you cannot sort out someone sitting in a in I've Russia. Left, I've left that question rhetorical, folks. Sorry. Okay. Fine. <laughs> no, 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 no. I oh. left your, your question about everything she says. Everything right, she says, yeah. sorry, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, can't, I don't think anyone could do anything about someone sitting in a factory in Russia somewhere creating a fake news story, which is the re- that's the real fake news, isn't it? That, you know, there are, apparently there are people coming up with some extraordinarily ludicrous story about the Pope supporting um, supporting Donald Trump, right, that was, was a genuine invention of someone somewhere. That's how fake news really started. What Donald Trump talks about day and day, politicians talk about day and day, is, not, is, is a completely different thing. It just means news I don't agree with, that often is true. Well, apparently what has particularly upset the government and prompted this was the story about Tory MPs voting that animals weren't sentient oh, yeah. and couldn't feel pain but yeah. it was spread by an astonishing amount of idiots who actually thought that Tory MPs were, you just st- stood there twiddling their moustaches adjusting their monocles voting about how animals should all be you know flogged and turned into glue it was of course it was ridiculous and that wasn't what happened at all but apparently I apparently the word is that this is what has that was what really caught the government's attention was this particularly pernicious story about themselves I read about that on the independent so uh, <laughs> yeah that was the story that got yeah, shared wasn't independent it shared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, are you ready to do three very quick and fascinating stories about the world of podcasting always good uh, first up in the states we've seen tv getting into podcasts in a big way Boy, tell us what this is about. Oh, yeah. So um, I think American, um, you know, the big American um, networks and um, streaming services have suddenly realized that programs like Serial, podcasts like Serial, which, you know, have become massive, huge phenomena and tens of millions of people listening to them. Well, they've got to tap into that. It's a new and why not? My slight feeling is... The reason why, you know, Serial being the obvious example and certain other true crime is a particularly effective and popular podcast genre, I feel, and told in that very American, you know, way of reportage and it, and it works brilliantly. Dirty John, another example of a huge hit. There was a brilliant story told perfectly well. I feel, if I, do I really want to see the same story that Serial, that Sarah Koenig did on TV, told again in a slightly different way? I'm not sure if I do. So I almost think, oh, sure, you know, get... Find those kind of stories and find out a way of telling them. But in a way, that's happened already because there are HBO true crime series. And, of course, Making a Murder was... I think Making a Murder was the equivalent of Serial, really. And well, arguably, um, The Night Of was an equivalent of Serial. The Night Of, right, it? yeah. Well, in drama terms, The Night Of, yeah. So trying to come up with dramatised versions of these podcasts seems an odd, slightly odd thing to do. But I don't blame them for trying it. My own feeling is I'm not going to be as excited about a new version of a story I've already heard told brilliantly on a podcast done on television. But it's just a brand, isn't it, Rebecca? It's the same as we've seen in the movie universe with all the comic books being plundered for names. I mean, it's it's just a way of having a new story, but under a brand yeah, that means you have buy-in from I mean, an it's, audience. It's what, happened, you know, it's what happened in the 1950s when all the popular radio shows went to TV. And actually, I think that, if you step into my time machine with me, you know, a lot of it does depend on the genre. Like, Two Dope Queens is coming to TV, and Comedy Bang Bang started as a podcast. 
I think, you know, those kinds of shows can work quite seamlessly on TV. If it's just two people sitting around, you can watch them sit around on TV just as easily. But when it comes to dramas, one of the things that the story made me think about straight away was when the Jack Benny programme in the 1950s went to TV, it became so flat. It lasted a few seasons and then went off the air because the radio show had been on for 20 years and it it was that... It relied a lot on surreal humour and lots of jokes revolving around the fact that you couldn't see anything right. you know and like you know they would say or oh, why aren't you wearing any clothes etc and then everyone would laugh because it's like the end of a scene you realize the person was naked etc you know that kind of thing is so hard to translate and when you've built up little a... britain did a whole series of that being the punchline to every <laughs> sketch i'm sorry i wasn't expecting a jack benner you referenced you really down with I've the kids right back in time but i just think it, it's like a, it's a second wave of that happening now podcast yeah. going to tv and i think tv executives are very excited about it i don't know if podcast listeners well are what about podcasters about though because you mentioned two dope queens just mm. briefly on that and that's a fascinating example because that is two black american women who do albeit it's recorded in front of an audience on the podcast so it's not a huge translation mm. to put it in front of a live audience on telly but for them owning the rights to their own show i mean okay everything in america is done with a little bit more of a business head-on than here but you know there are independent podcasters here in the uk and in europe who are going to be thinking wow yeah, I mean, it's, it's great for podcasters. And I think TV executives are very excited that, that basically, as you say, you know, that's an example of a show of two black women. There are lots of other podcasts that have that kind of diversity that isn't necessarily reflected in TV lineups. And I think TV executives are thinking, perfect, they've got these, you know, we want to increase diversity, but we don't really want to spend a lot of money or effort doing it. Let's buy all these popular shows that have that diversity and have a built-in audience. And so we can just, you know, boom, translate that. Well, I don't don't know if podcast listeners who, you know, do skew young, as excited as as TV executives are, that they're now going to be able to watch, you know, their favourite programme on FX once a week. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Whilst we're sticking with podcasts, I promise you three stories. Next up, an interesting analysis by Wired on the stats that Apple Podcasts released late last year. Uh, any headlines from this that grabbed your attention? I read the story, and it wasn't the, the, the most exciting thing about it for me was, as, a, as a, I've got two podcasts. Go on, though, plug away. Are footballistically, Arsenal, yep. about Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Unmissables, which is a weekly pop culture uh, review, mainly TV, but also some other film and stuff that I do. The Unmissables one I do is always about an hour, right, in duration. And I remember when I first started doing my Arsenal one, um, I was told by it, because, you know, we were kind of commissioned by powers that be to make it, that 35 minutes was the optimum time. And I always thought, well, how do you know this, this fact that 35, you know, do people stop listening at 35 minutes? Because yeah. I listen to podcasts that go on for hours, and I'm perfectly happy coming back to them, you know, listening to them on my daily commute. And this... So Apple finally got some detailed information they released, if you want to, about your podcast. And it showed that, in fact, listeners are happy to carry on listening for hours on end. And sometimes the longer the episodes of a podcast did better than the shorter episodes. And so when they were playing out um, roles of advertising after about half an hour, people would hear them. That's the and interesting thing a, commercially, yeah. isn't yeah. it? So you it was you a, still have listeners 35, yeah. 45, 50 minutes into a show. So yeah. why sell the first minute? Yeah. Well, that, this is the other big takeaway was how that podcast listeners are as has long been suspected extremely engaged with ads compared to you know people being reached on other mediums tv what have you and i think that's that's so true and i think the the difference is is that ads are part of the culture of podcasting in a way that they are not in any other medium you know when tv ads come on you don't you know go oh great it's that benson's for beds advert again (laughs) whereas podcasts because they have drawn most of their advertisers from a relatively small pool those adverts for Casper, you know, for HelloFresh, etc., are part of podcasting culture. You know, there was a, 
a really funny parody podcast called Done Disappeared, a parody of all the true crime podcasts. And they included parodies of those adverts. You know, they'd be talking about they found her body torn open with all her innards (laughs) and they say, Hello Fresh is great for seasoned home cook. You know, it's it's fantastic. Stamps.com. But that's an advertiser's dream. You know, people are not only not skipping them as much as podcasters and advertisers might have feared, they're listening to them and they're taking them on board. And I think that's great, great for everyone. Before the quiz, I promised you three podcast stories. I think this is probably the most important one. one. Yeah, this is the third one. This is the third one. I'm excited. It's coming, yeah. (laughs) This week, we heard the British Podcast Awards will be returning. Yes. Hosted by Ollie Mann, co-produced by producer Matt. So, obviously, the most important podcast story of the week. Featuring multiple nominations for Footballistically Arsenal and the Unmissables. Are you going to be entering, boys? I'm definitely going to enter the Unmissables. I mean, there's about 20 million Arsenal ones. That's, 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 you know, to be fair. Very good. This is what we want, isn't it, Rebecca? We want podcasters (laughs) to be able to say for themselves, yes, the entry fee is staggeringly low. They're doing this not-for-profit. What a brilliant event. But also to say, nonetheless, I'm going to hold back. I'm only going to put in the stuff that's award-worthy. Oh, I'm not saying my Arsenal one isn't a wall worthy. There's just so many of them. Carry on. But no, it is. It is uh, a good. Uh, genuinely, I mean, I, I wouldn't be involved in this. I thought it was a good thing for the for the whole of the British radio industry actually to to have podcasts properly yeah, I celebrated. Mean, definitely, I think podcasts are still lacking a bit of love in the UK compared to in the US. I mean, they've got a dedicated. I think there's a relatively dedicated listenership of podcasts, but I'm not quite sure that we we have we haven't really had a serial. We had my dad write a porno, which is probably the closest, <laughs> very very Britishly, probably the closest thing we've <laughs> yeah, had to serial, yeah. um, was a bunch of people reading out bad erotica. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I think podcasts need all the attention they can. I said when we did our media predictions for 2018 special that this was going to be the year of the UK podcast, and you laughed at me, but I think it could happen yet. And I think anything that gets more attention to the world of podcasting in the UK is very welcome. I was thinking that in my Unmissables, which is, as I said, we review films and TV, if I murdered one of my co co presenters, <laughs> it could turn into a true crime one, and then I'd get millions of listeners. Pivot. Pivot uh, to true crime. Right, yeah, there's just time for our media quiz, which isn't a whodunit, but is this week entitled Famous Last Words. Ooh. Uh, far be it from us at the Media Podcast to hold people to account for their opinions. Uh, but we are going to do it anyway. Um, And as Rebecca mentioned, our prediction special is still available. I'll give you a quote. You tell me who said it and why it mattered this week in the media. It's the best of three, so you buzzing with your name, Rebecca, you will say... Rebecca. And Boyd, you will say... Boyd. The winner retains the right to be forgotten. The loser retains the right to remain. Here we go. Who said this? Here is quote number one. I've always found the theatre stressful. I've not been because... (laughs) Boyd. Boyd. Giles Corran. It was Giles Corrin, the full quote. I've not been to the theatre because you've got to get there by half past seven and I have to bath my kids and put them to sleep before I can go out. Uh, remind us of this story, boys. So he controversially was one of the TV presenters on the TV version of Front Row mm-hmm. on BBC on Saturday night. And in the, fir- in the big publicity blitz to, to announce the arrival of these new presenters, the big story he decided to go with <laughs> was to tell everyone he hates theatre, which has obviously immediately alienated I, I, the arts community. I love Giles Corrin. I can't help it. It's I like, like it's my guilty pleasure. Yeah, I like Giles. A... He's your George Galloway. Ooh. And so what happened this week? He's, 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 not, he's, he's leaving. He, yes. he tweeted that his diary was too full to oh. uh, continue presenting to the front theater. row. Yeah. Uh, who do you think should replace him then? The, the cast of front row on the radio? Yeah, John That's Wilson a, yeah, and Mira Ahmed. There's no reason yeah. why they shouldn't do that. It's just crazy. Okay. Uh, here is quote number two. 
The Premier League's important to us, but it is one of a broad set of rights. We always have a plan B if we don't get what we want. Rebecca. Rebecca. But I may only get half a point because I do not know his the name. The name of the BT chief executive? No what? It's, it's embarrassing, Everyone really, knows it? his name. Especially when I bump into him so often. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is, they're talking about the fact that BT and Sky are soon going to be putting their bids in for the next cycle of football. Mm. Uh, and that... The, well, the big story from this was that Facebook or Amazon may also try and enter the race and, you know, probably bid for one of the smaller packages. Yeah, that counts. You get the point. It was BT chief Gavin Patterson uh, <laughs> on the eve of negotiations for the next tranche of live football rights. Do you think it'd be a good thing, Boyd, if Amazon does get Premier Football? Uh, I wouldn't mind because uh, I'm an Amazon subscriber and I almost subscribe to BT and Sky. So I, I mean, I have to automatically subscribe to any service that is going to show live football. Sure, but those who aren't either TV critics or football <laughs> mad or both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's most of our audience. Uh, um, I mean, what, what about for them? Swilling in money is that the phrase? So I mean, they can afford it. I mean, so can Netflix, of course. It'd be interesting. I'd be fascinated if they did. I kind of hope they do because it will, as they say, and I think shake it up maybe a bit. <laughs> yeah. Do you think we'll see Jeremy Clarkson presenting? They've got to do oh, something don't. with him. No. Uh, for the three of you who have asked me this morning, this is quote number three, by the way. This is all, this is oh, all to play for now because you've got one each. Right, yeah. For the three of you who have asked me this morning, I am not a Freemason. Rebecca. Rebecca. Oh. I, this is really unfair because... For the I, win. I did just write about this. This is one of the Telegraph hacks, isn't it? I can't remember it. Whose name it? You're not very good with names, are you? I'm not amazing with names. It's, uh, no. Christopher Hope, the political correspondent for the Telegraph. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is a story that there are. I mean, you could have got this actually, Boyd, because I did mention at the start there was a there was a clue scattered in earlier um, <laughs> yeah. that there are three Freemasons lodges active in Westminster. One of whom has MPs and allegedly peers and its members, and two of whom were open to political journalists. According to a report in The Guardian. According so you digging around, have you verified that's true? Um, so when you look into this a bit further, it, a lot of papers have kind of fudged this story to make it sound like it's entirely made up of political journalists, whereas the, the, like in the official statement from the Lodge, they've said that no member that they've admitted since the year 2000 has been a journalist. So it's all been sort of fudged over a bit to make it seem a bit more salacious and exciting than it is, and it probably isn't very interesting at all. And well, no one's heard of it in the lobby. This is what they've all come out to say. I think they all feel a bit wounded, frankly, so that they haven't yeah. been invited. That no one knows about it. Yeah, or they're double bluffing and they're all in it. Mm. That would be a good story, wouldn't yeah. it? <laughs> uh, well, uh, nothing could be more salacious and exciting than to say, Rebecca, you are this week's winner. Hurrah. Congratulations. Commiserations, Boyd. It's been a pleasure to have you along. Devastated, but thanks. Uh, <laughs> that's it for our show today. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Pod and you enjoy the feeling of giving money to people who really, really need it, then consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount of your choosing to keep us going all year round. And remember, you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye.